First Samuel, chapter 25. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favour in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared, and five sears of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. 
And as she rode on a donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down towards her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Chapter 25, uh, starting at verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my lord whom you sent. Now then, my lord, as the lord lives and as your soul lives, because the lord restrained you, from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be his neighbor. And now let this present that your servant has brought up to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. An evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all that is good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt with well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunk. So she told them nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, 
and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinom of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galen. Our theme this morning, and what I'd like us to talk about, is wisdom. And here's a question. What do you need to know in order to be able to act wisely? Uh, as a church, we're facing difficult decisions at the moment. Well, what do we need to know in order to be able to act wisely? It's not just us as a church. We live in a difficult cultural moment, what you might call the final throes of the death of Christian Britain. I don't know whether you have been following Scottish politics, but just think of what's happened to Kate Forbes, um, who has articulated what everybody in the entire culture more or less thought not very long ago, and what everybody thought was completely obvious for Christians to think, really very recently indeed, and been treated with total vilification for it. And it might make you wonder, how do you speak wisely into a culture like ours? We could be a bit more down to earth than that, couldn't we? As individuals, we are constantly navigating tricky decisions. And should we speak into that situation? And how should we take up that opportunity that has come across our path? Should we pursue this particular relationship? Should I apply for that job? And what do I think that the Lord actually wants me to do with what time I have this week in the coming days? What do you need to know to be able to act wisely? Of course, the minute that you talk about wisdom, you might begin to think that the right answer is hedge. And I was taught that in the Bible, youth is the time of heroism and old age is the time of wisdom. And if that's true, it could make you think that wisdom is inherently unheroic, cautious, discretion. If I said that this morning I was going to give a talk about wisdom in evangelism, I think you'd expect that I was going to give a talk mostly about when not to say things in conversations. And if I said that I was going to give you a talk on wisdom in action, you'd think that my main point was that we should act slowly and cautiously. Do you know what? I'm not sure that's quite right. Um, I think 1 Samuel 25 has something to teach us. Well, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 25 this morning, and it is a massively significant chapter 
At first glance, you might wonder, you might think, what is this random chapter doing? All the real action, well, that happens in the chapters around it. In chapter 24 and and chapter 26, the, the kingdom of Saul literally hangs by a thread, David and Saul going toe to toe. In the chapters either side of that, there are battles and and covenants and high-speed police chases. And then here you get this funny little interlude, um, a flashback to David's shepherding days up country. But if you think that this is a slightly random chapter, um, can I suggest that you've made quite a significant misjudgment? It's actually tremendously important. I mean, to begin with, it's the chapter where Samuel dies. And of course, Samuel has been the dominant force in the book of 1 Samuel. But but more than that, I think there's a very good case to be made that this is a key turning point, certainly the turning point in chapters 24 to 26, and that without doubt. But I think you can make the case that 1 Samuel chapter 25 is the hinge on which the whole of the books of 1 and 2 Samuel turn. It's a very important chapter. And the key figure in the chapter is Abigail. Her speech is at the heart of it all. It's full of echoes uh, back to 1 Samuel um, and also some very significant flash forwards into 2 Samuel. And what Abigail does in this chapter is to teach David and to teach us wisdom. Uh, The purpose, I think the Lord's purpose for us this morning is to persuade us that the key to wise action is rock-solid confidence that the Lord will give his kingdom to the house of David, to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin with Abigail's lesson for David. And her lesson for David is that, David, you can be certain that the Lord will give you the kingdom. Now, when I talk about Abigail's lesson for David, you might flinch a little internally. Uh, One of my favorite episodes of The Crown um, is the one with Michael Fagan in it. You know, the one, the the guy who breaks in to Buckingham Palace to sort of chat to the Queen. Uh, And that's my favorite episode for two reasons. The first is that when the producers of that series wanted to find a place that really embodied the kind of utter God-forsakenness, the total bleakness and desperation of early 1980s London... They chose the street just behind my house. That's the first reason. Um, The second reason I love that episode is just the audacity of this guy, Michael Fagan, that he's got some stuff that's gone wrong in his life. He thinks, I need to take this up with somebody who can do something about it. And so he breaks in, not once, but twice into Buckingham Palace and breaks into the Queen's own bedroom and then sits on the end of her bed and teaches her a thing or two about the state of the country. It's Incredibly presumptuous, isn't it? And you might think, surely David is not like that. He doesn't need teaching. David is the one who teaches us. But the truth is that in 1 Samuel chapter 25, David does need teaching. I'm not saying he is the biggest fool in this chapter, and that award goes to somebody else by a long way. And Nabal, his name is Fool. Uh, And that's how it plays out. Nabal's treatment of David is incredibly bad. Maybe when you heard the passage read, you thought that it was a bit cheeky of David to expect food from Nabal's table. 
But that's wrong. Um, Nabal treats David horribly. David has been acting as a faithful servant to him. He has been defending his shepherds. Actually, he's kind of been defending his sheep. Everybody agrees in the chapter that all the time that David went with Nabal's shepherds, not a single lamb was lost to disease um, or to wild animals or anything else. His servant says, listen, David and his men were a wall to us all the time that they went with us. And now Nabal is cashing in um, the results of largely David's labor. And he's shearing the sheep and having a festival on the back of the proceeds. And David comes to him in extravagantly peaceful terms. Peace to you, peace to your house, peace to anything that you have to do with, peace. And Nabal throws it back in his face. He even has the gall to make a snide remark about David's relationship with Saul. Nabal's treatment of David is horrible in the chapter. There are unmistakable echoes of Saul. Saul, like Nabal, was a great man. Saul, like Nabal, benefited consistently from David's excellent work. Saul, like Nabal, found David to be a wall to him, dealing with his enemies. And Saul, like Nabal, threw it in David's face. Saul and David are united in this. They both feast like kings, Saul and Nabal, and they're both fools. And so there's nothing unreasonable in David's anger with Nabal. But the course of action that David is about to take is foolish. And verse 13, David said to his men, every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his swords, and even David's strapped on his swords. And they rode off with murder in their eyes. David needs to be taught. And his teacher is Abigail. And she makes haste. She makes sure that David is ready um, to speak to her and when she intercepts him. And then she gives this speech that takes up sort of 15 verses or so of the center of the chapter I think the key verses are the ones towards the end. Let's pick it up from verse 28. Abigail says, Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, like Saul, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God's. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lords, please then remember your servants. Now, there's so much that we could say about Abigail. You could probably write a book about her approach to diplomacy. In fact, when I say you probably could, somebody has. And Google it, there is a book called The Abigail Approach to Peacemaking. But really, her advice, it boils down to two points. Did you, did you hear them? Number one, David, 
you can be absolutely certain that the Lord will give you the kingdom. He will surely give it, she says. It's a sure house, she says. Your life is bound up in the bundle of the living, she says. It's not a matter of if he gives you the kingdom. It is just a matter of when. You can be totally certain, rock-solid confidence. And therefore, point two, because you're certain, you don't need to do the wrong thing now. Verse 30 again. When the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, if you'll only listen to me, then my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. You don't need to do the wrong thing now. You don't need to save yourself by your own hands. You don't need to shed blood without cause. I guess you could boil Abigail's wisdom down to this. Look, David, you are surely going to the top. So don't do anything on the way up that will bring you down when you get there. The Lord will surely give the kingdom to David. And so David doesn't need to do the wrong thing now. Uh, Right at the heart of Abigail's speech is a, a strong axis between trust and obedience. Trust and obey. It's a lesson that King Saul never learnt. He never really trusted that God could or would establish the kingdom in his hands. He never really trusted that God would deliver him from his enemies. And so he never could refrain from taking the apparently sensible but actually disobedient course of action. He didn't trust God. And so, well, he saved himself by his own hands. It's a lesson that King Saul never learnt. It's a lesson that Abraham had to learn. If you really trust that the Lord will surely give you a family as numerous as the stars of heaven, as as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore, well, if you really trust him, you take him at his word and let him do it. What you do not do is to commandeer your wife's maidservant and sleep with her and see if you can try and create a family of your own. It's a lesson that Abraham had to learn. There's a very good case, I think John Calvin suggests this, for suggesting that actually a lack of trust is at the heart of all sin. We don't trust, we don't take God at his words that he will be our goods. And so we think we need to come up with our own goods and take it by our own hands. And to all of that, Abigail says no. No, my Lord, that is not the wise way. And David recognizes that she saved him. Verse 32, David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. In some ways, it's a chapter about the Lord saving David's, but make no mistake, he saves David by sending Abigail to teach him. Actually, I think if you take a step back, um, this is a transforming moment in the life of David. 
1 Samuel chapters 21 through to 31 traces out a kind of a story arc. And in that arc, a number of things happen twice. You can see if you can spot them. Um, Let me give you two examples. Two times, in order to escape from Saul, David flees to Gath and takes refuge there. And two times, David has the opportunity to to kill King Saul, and he doesn't take it. The thing that's striking, though, is how much more confident David is the second time. And take the Gath example. Last week, we saw David fleeing to Gath and pretending to be mad in order to survive whilst he was there, understandably terrified as he hid amongst the Philistines. But in next week's passage, when he flees to Gath, same place, that's not what he does. He goes and he actually gets himself enlisted as the king of Gath's second in command and functions as a double agent riding out from Gath to sort of deal with all of Judah's enemies ahead of time. Double agent is extraordinarily gutsy what he does. Or take his opportunities to kill Saul. The first time Saul stumbles into the cave where David is hiding, cowering with his men, and Saul needs the loot. And, and David's men try to persuade David to kill Saul. And do you know what? He nearly does. And he cuts off the end of his robe, which at the very least is a symbolic act of regicide and may actually be an invitation to his men to finish the job. And then David regrets it. But the second time David has the opportunity, it's completely different. It's not that Saul stumbles into David's cave. No, David finds out where Saul is, and he takes one guy, just one bloke, and the two of them run right into the heart of Saul's camp, and are completely surrounded by all of Saul's army. So bold. And then David steals the spear and the lamp. No thought of killing Saul this time. He just wants to shout back to Abner, um, Saul's bodyguard. Listen, if only Saul had me as his bodyguard instead of you. He's transformed. So confident. And the thing that changes him is that he's learned Abigail's lesson. The kingdom is certain. So you can do the right thing. Of course, the point is not that he does nothing. That's why it's wrong to think that wisdom is all about caution. It's not. The point is not that David does nothing. He's incredibly bold, incredibly brave, and very active in the next chapters. But he doesn't do the wrong thing. And of course, in the first instance, this is a lesson for David the king, and not for us. It's a lesson that the Lord Jesus had deep in his heart. You might remember that moment when Satan tempted the Lord Jesus and offered him the kingdom. He said, you can have all of the nations of the earth as your heritage. Have the kingdom, but without the cross. You have the kingdom without the cost. You have the crown without the cross. Just let me be your father. Just look to me instead of the one who's making you do it such a hard and long way round. To which the Lord Jesus said, no, I will not take the shortcuts 
I am absolutely certain that my father is good. He will give me the kingdom. And so I will walk to the cross. It's a lesson that Jesus had written on his heart. And thank God that he did. Because there would be no salvation for you. And there would be no salvation for me if he did not. In the first instance, this is a lesson about the kind of king that we need. It's a lesson for for David the king. But we'll think about this and tell me what you think. I do think that this has something to say to us as well. The heart of sin is not to trust God to give you the good that he's promised and to look for your own goods and to take it your own way. And we are servants of the king. And we're waiting for the kingdom. And whilst we wait for the kingdom, we've been given kingdom work to do. So just see what you think about this. I think that if, if we don't trust God's promise that Jesus will surely receive the kingdom, then we will try to take it our own way. We'll try to do kingdom work, but do it very badly. Perhaps we'll compromise. Perhaps we'll rely on force, even violence. Perhaps we'll look to the leadership of bullies because, you know, they just get the job done. If we're wronged, you will be wronged at some point. If we're wronged, we'll take vengeance into our own hands. I must deal with this injustice, even if it makes you a fool. And if we don't trust God to give us good, we'll look to our own good instead. I don't know. Think about it. I think there's stuff for us to learn. And to all of that, Abigail says, no, the Lord will certainly give the kingdom to David, to David's house, ultimately to the Lord Jesus. And so David is free to do it his way. Yes, to take risks. Yes, to be brave, even reckless, but to do it right. I think there's something for us to learn. We can definitely learn, though, from Abigail's example. And that's our second point a bit more briefly this morning. Um, Abigail's lesson to David, now Abigail's example to us. We should be certain that the Lord will give the house of David, ultimately the Lord Jesus, the kingdom. And we should act like Abigail. Uh, The point is that in this chapter, Abigail is not just here as a teacher to David. She's also saving herself. Actually, she's saving her fool of a husband as well, if only he realized it. She is an extraordinary woman, isn't she? Nabal, her husband, acts the fool, and Abigail hears, and she instantly takes decisive action. She sends all of these gifts, all the cakes ahead of her, and and she then sets off, and she makes sure she gets there first, and she opens this incredible um, speech. We could make quite a big thing of her discretion, actually. Um, It's a great opening couple of lines in her speech. Did you spot them? And point number one, listen, I'm really sorry. It's my fault. I should never have left my fool of a husband unsupervised. And then number two, thank God that I'm here now so that you're not left unsupervised to do something you might regret. I mean, she's a real force, isn't she, Abigail? Um, Actually, I think the Bible holds her up as something of an ideal woman, strong and decisive. Yes, she's certainly a helper to her husband, 
She saves his life, but quick to the pass when things are going wrong. And not afraid and to call a spade a spade. We could learn a lot about womanhood from Abigail. But I don't think the main lesson of this chapter is Abigail's sharp tongue or diplomatic prudence um, or her style of womanhood. It is the fact that she takes decisive action. Um, In a nutshell, she sees two things. Number one, the Lord will certainly give the kingdom to David. It is striking how clear-sighted Abigail is in this chapter. I mean, obviously, she sees things better than Nabal does. But it is incredibly perceptive of her to see things so clearly. In the previous chapter, David described himself as a dead dog and a flea. In the next chapter, he'll describe himself as a partridge wandering around the mountains. In the previous chapter, David was hiding in a cave. Even in this chapter, he's gone up country, safely out of Saul's way. um, David is surrounded by a bunch of misfits and renegades. Not many people were smart enough to understand that the future belongs to David's. But Abigail does. Verse 28, the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. That's the first thing she sees. And because of that, she sees a second thing. Number two, there is nothing more urgent than being on the right side of David now. Verse 28, she asks that David forgive her Um, In other words, that she doesn't die with the rest of Nabal's house at that moment. uh, And David does forgive her and and Nabal's house. But not just now. There's also a future. Verse 31. When the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. And she says, she understands that the Lord will surely give David the kingdom. And so she does what it takes to get on the right side of him now. Again, in some ways, this is the the same point, isn't it? If you understand that the Lord will surely give the house of David, the Lord Jesus, the kingdom, that is not really a reason for passivity, is it? Um, If you're on the wrong side of David and you know that David is going to be given the kingdom, well, whatever you do, don't be passive. Like, send the cake, send the figs, send the raisins, like, Go as fast as you can. Get on your donkey. Fall down at his feet and beg. Look, I'm sorry for my fool of a husband and I'm sorry for myself. Do what it takes to get on the right side of him now. Because you know the future belongs to him. It's striking, isn't it, that in 1 Samuel, it's two women. And he see this the most clearly. Hannah at the beginning of the book and Abigail here right at the heart's. The king is coming. The king is coming. So line up with him. And of course, she's spectacularly vindicated. Um, Immediately, she's vindicated. She saves herself and her family um, as David decides to abandon his mission. Ultimately, she's vindicated. We'll see this next week. Um, The Lord does deal with all of David's enemies. And just as Abigail says that he will. And even within the rest of the chapter, she's vindicated. 
Nabal's heart turns to stone and he is slung away uh, like the stone that David slung into Goliath's foreheads. And she's proved right. The Lord gives the kingdom to David. And so she's right. It's the time to make peace with David whilst you can. The very best thing that David does in the whole chapter is to marry her. Uh, She is a wise woman. Uh, And you've got to think if only he had stuck to her um, and not added the other wives that proved to be his undoing and the undoing of Israel in the end. We can learn, I think, from Abigail's example. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you're, you're so welcome and with us. We're so glad that you're here. But I hope you can see that Abigail is a great example. And if she's right, that the future surely belongs to the Lord Jesus, the greater David in the house of David, and, and she is right about that. If she is right about that, then, then the only wise course of action is to do what it takes to get on the right side of the Lord Jesus now. Actually, she's a great example to all of us here. Let me quote Don Carson. Um, I am not a prophet, and I'm not the son of a prophet, and I work like Don Carson for a non-profit organization. But here is a prophecy that I can make with absolute confidence. The day is coming when all the world will realize that the future belongs to Jesus Christ. You can have rock-solid confidence that God has given the kingdom to Jesus. I might sometimes doubt this. You might too. But Jesus is coming back. The future is his. And so the bedrock of all wisdom, the fundamental principle of right action is that you realize this and act accordingly. What should we do as a church? How do we speak to our culture? Who should I live with next year? Should I stay for a master's degree? Where should I work? Who should I date? Do I need to buy a house right now? Listen, these are not always straightforward decisions. They're, They're complex, right? But let Abigail teach you the starting point, the basis for all right action, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get clear on the fact that the kingdom of Jesus Christ, his return and his new world is a fact. And then whatever you do, make sure that it doesn't put you or anybody that you love on the wrong side of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to praise you so much and that you have given the kingdom to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that one day all the world will see. And we thank you that his kingdom is so good. And it's so good that it will endure forever. And we pray that by your spirit, you would teach each one of us to be wise and to live our lives now in the light of the certain facts of the future kingdom of your son. In Jesus' name, amen.